Hello, everyone, and welcome to Medium Cool, a movie podcast. I'm your host, Austin Glidden, and as always, you can find us on social media at Medium Cool Pod on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. That's facebook.com backslash Medium Cool Pod. You can search Medium Cool Pod on Instagram, we'll pop up, and at Medium Cool Pod on Twitter. You can also email us at mediumcoolpod at gmail.com. Don't forget to like, subscribe, follow, whatever the thing is, wherever you're listening to this. Uh, please keep up with us. You know, we're going to be putting up episodes every week. It's going to be great. Unless it's last week. I'll talk about that in a minute. Um, but seriously, it really helps. Any ratings, reviews, anything like that, it always helps content creators. I don't think you understand how much it helps, actually. Uh, it is very, very helpful. So um, as I alluded to just a moment ago, uh, last week we had no episode and, uh, there are many reasons for this. I'm not going to go into why, um, but I just decided to take last week off because the weekend ended up being so busy. And I just decided at that point, you know what? I'm just not even going to worry about it because I could not sync my schedule with anyone that I was reaching out to. And I was like, damn it. I'm just going to have a free week. Now I kind of regret it. I wish I could go back and do it all differently. Um, but I'm back. I'm back. And I have uh, a really fun episode because we are bringing back friend of the show, Jake Bottolieri, not JB, his father. I plan to have him on soon to talk about Hitchcock, but Jake Bottolieri, our old friend, we did Wong Kar Wai with him. We did, we've done several things with him. He's great. And, uh, one thing that I started doing with new guests, but something I did not do with him when he started that we're kind of retroactively doing is talking about the movies that have informed the lens in which he watches all movies now, right? So those pivotal moments where you see this movie and it just changes the way you think about cinema altogether. And I usually let my, my, uh, guests choose, uh, how to interpret that. You know, because it could be interpreted many different ways. Is it the films that actually influence my lens the most currently right now? Because I think of, you know, one of my films is Amelie because it is the pivotal film that got me to think about movies in a different way. However, it doesn't really influence my lens as much anymore, depending on what I'm watching, at least. So, uh, but that would still be on my list personally, because I would interpret it as my kind of chronological journey. And what are those kind of pivotal staple movies that uh, have throughout my timeline kind of, uh, you know, changed the way that I saw movies. So anyways, uh, this is going to be a fun episode. I always love talking to Jake. Jake is a screenwriter in L.A., um, and he also works for, uh, Kodak as well, which is pretty awesome. He's telling me some really cool stuff that's going on there that I will not repeat, uh, for the time being, but uh, a lot of people making movies on film again, which is interesting. Uh, so, uh, he has a really great wealth of knowledge. Again, we met back, uh, when we were both attending Ball State as undergrads studying film and media studies. And uh, we were in the same film class. I forget if it was a genres class or a history, film history class. But whatever class we were first in, we sat next to each other. Coincidentally, I just sat there. He sat next to me. And uh, we didn't talk for, like, weeks. And then eventually we realized that we were the ones that kept raising our hands every time that the professor would ask, you know, have has anyone seen this? And we would be among maybe you know, a total of three or four people, if not just the two of us who had seen all of these movies, because we had just really dug in um, as kind of pre-academic 
film buffs, right? So anyways, it was really fun getting to know him. Um, and in many ways, he's like a sibling to me more so than he is, uh, you know, just a friend or a guest on the show. So uh, without further ado, here's my conversation with Jake Bottolieri. I really, really hope you guys dig it. All right, everybody, I'm here with Jake Bottolieri, my old friend. He's been on the show before, but it has been a while, hasn't it, Jake? It's, it's been a minute. Uh, I want to say nine months, something like that. Oh, wait, what? You mean I've had your dad on here multiple times since you've been on here? I, I think I think that is true, but it's it's OK. My dad is a very charismatic guy. I, I, I'm not mad at it. Yeah, yeah, he's he's great. We're going to have him on pretty soon to do a uh, Hitchcock marathon. Oh, which will be a lot of fun. Uh, but uh, today, actually, the whole purpose of this is uh, I, you know, I've you started coming on before I started doing this with a lot of guests. And usually what right. I do with with the first time that I have a guest on is uh, lately I've been doing this thing where we we talk about w- what informed the lens in which you view cinema now. Right. Right. And uh, a lot of times people will choose movies as they grew up, kind of like you did. I can mm-hmm. see that you sent me a list with. um you know, kind of the years you remember seeing these things, which yeah. is awesome. Uh, some people will do that. Some people will talk about this is what my lens is right now. Like all the stuff that I've seen, like this is kind of where it was. So when I did it with your dad, we did our top five movies that influenced how we see film. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was more of that. Like I sit right now. Right. What are the things that kind of did that um, for me, at least? So. Uh, this this would be really fun. I, I'm excited to kind of finally retroactively get your your list here. Yeah. Um, but but tell us a little bit about how I think I already asked you this on the first episode, but give us a little bit of a recap so we can kind of get to 1994, which is where this list begins. Where were you before then? What were you watching? I mean, you had uh, movie loving parents. Yeah. You know, h- yeah. How, how did you get here? Uh, yeah. I mean, obviously, when you when you have folks that dig movies as much as mine do it, it, you know, you're, you're sort of on a, on a, you know, a trajectory that, that can only do good over time. Right. But I, I think it was important for me to, to take your question, like as weird as it is, like as literally as possible, because I, I think I've had so many conversations with people, you, you included over the years where we sort of pontificate over the difference between like, well, top 10 favorite is different than what you think are top 10 best or top 10 that have influenced, you know, they're very different questions when you break it down. So after I got your prompt, it, I was thinking about what my list would be. And there is that, there's that nagging instinct to include, well, I really want to talk about killing them softly. I really want to talk about Andrew Dominic. I really want to talk about, you know, this, but you're like, well, let's actually look at the question. And if I were to answer the, the films that have sort of ground that lens, the films that really sort of set up uh, the prism that I view everything else, a lot of it is early stuff. Uh, yeah. You know, the listeners will see, it's not all early stuff, but a lot of it is early stuff. And pre, I think my first pick I put 1994. Yeah. Pre 1994, I was, I was a toddler, right? So my intake, oh, fuck, I forgot. Yeah, <laughs> I'm 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 dating myself in a way. Um, but pre 94, it would have been a lot of Disney 
And I actually think this is important to bring up at least for a sentence about it. I actually had an asterisk on my list before my number one pick just to bring up Star Wars. And I, I don't think it's important to talk about because it's, it's um, I feel like you can't have an objective conversation about Star Wars anymore. And I don't mean that in a good way or a bad way. I just mean that in an objective way. But I think Star Wars was the thing that transitioned me from Disney films into like, hey, maybe there's other stuff out there. The only problem is I have zero recollection of ever seeing Star Wars for the first time. I just yeah. know that I always loved it. And my mom tells me this story all the time where, and keep in mind, this is pre, you know, Lucas jimmying with all the effects and stuff like that. My mom tells the story about how Star Wars was on TV. And I was just like walking through the room, holding a stuffed animal or something. And I see it on the TV and I stop and I just drop the stuffed animal out of my hand. So I have no <laughs> recollection of that. So I don't feel like Star Wars for for a number of reasons would be good to talk about. But, but just real quick though, that, dude, for 94, just, yeah, yeah, you you brought up something so interesting that I've never thought about with Star Wars though. I don't remember ever seeing this for the first time either. Yeah, I remember seeing it in the '90s when my uncle had VHSs of the special edition, mm-hmm. but I had seen it before. You'd still you seen know what it, I'm yeah. But I I don't know when or why. Mm-hmm. Or or what was going on? What in? I mean, yeah. you know, you're an institution whenever it transcends <laughs> time, and it just is. Yeah. I, you know I think I mean? when you're a movie, you're a little bit older than me, but I I think when you're a movie kid, sort of of our broad generation, I think you just come online knowing Star Wars automatically, and yeah. the people that haven't seen it are obviously the outliers, but. Um, yeah, just to set up 94, yeah. it's it's a whole bunch of Disney and then Star Wars that I don't remember seeing for the first time. And then really thinking about the first film that had a huge, I think, psychic and emotional impact on me was my number one pick. Yeah. Well, I just got to say real quick, shout out to uh, my best friend's wife, Rosie Thrasher, who's never watched Star Wars. Yes. <laughs> She is, she is queen On of purpose. the outliers. It is yeah. a purpose now. It is yeah. like a pride point of pride that she's never watched them. I think if I have that right, uh, Thrasher, uh, text me if I'm wrong, and I'll correct it later. But I'm pretty sure it's it's Star Wars. Um, but anyways, so yeah, let's get into this list, man. You gave me one, two, three, four, five, uh, eight or nine movies here. Yeah, uh, we'll get through as many as we can. I hope that we can get through all of them uh, because this is. Uh, I love this list. Because uh, what I love about it is exactly what you just said. It's not just, um, you remember when we were at Ball State and we used to call it The List and there was a list of movies like Boondock Saints and Fight Club (laughs) and shit like that. And you don't just have like, the hits for you. You don't have some uh, yeah. some Jake Bottolieri version of the list, right? Um, like right. the uh, like killing them softly or something like that, which was pivotal. But by that point, you were watching it through this lens. Do you get what I'm saying? Yeah, and you yeah. were like, yes, it might have inspired it or reinforced it. Um, but uh, but I, I like I, I can't wait to ask you about some of these because this is a okay. real um, <laughs> uh, like. Uh, what's the word? It's it's like a, an eccentric, diverse mix. Um, yes. It is a mutt of a list, and, and it's, that's yes. my favorite kind of list. So the first one <laughs> that you have, which you were... Mutt yeah, of a you, list with Jake Butler. <laughs> Maybe. You never know. Maybe I'll yeah. write that down right now. Shut up. Um, so the first one on your list, though, 
1994. This is post toddler Jake Bottelieri. Yeah. And your 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 uh the first title is Batman Mask of the Phantasm. Tell oh, me yeah. a little bit about this. Well, I I think uh intrinsic to this list is also like most of these picks I really remember the first time I saw it and there's some weird abstract story connected to like seeing it for the first time. And um, as far as this goes, um, I don't know how much people know about it, but I don't want to like recap it, but it's, it's animated. And it was the, the film that was made by the same team that did Batman, the animated series, which, you know, was sort of notorious for people in my age group. It was, it was a, terrific series both visually and from a storytelling perspective and for a lot of people specifically my age it it was kind of their into batman they they didn't really get into batman through comic books or adam west i mean i i think the vast majority of people of my age group got into it either through the series or the tim burton films yeah. and for me it was the the series so Mask of the Phantasm, I, I, I don't even think it got a theatrical release. Uh, you might want to run interference on that. I think it was, it was either meant for straight to video and then they decided after the fact to give it a release or it was never given uh, a formal theatrical release. But I remember seeing it on Laserdisc, which <laughs> of course you date, dates me, right? <laughs> but I, I think important to that is... Um, Laserdisc had sound that was so much better than VHS. And I, of course, I was like a nerd even at a young age and maybe had more of an acuity for that. But even at, you know, five years old, you can tell the difference. Laserdiscs felt more cinematic because the sound was so full and so huge. And well, I mean, what's what's the uh, what's the biggest issue with a student film when we watch it? The sound is dog shit. The sound is always <laughs> terrible, and it makes yeah. the even no matter how great it looks. Yeah, if it sounds like shit, it's hard to watch. There's nothing so, like that sound of like the room tone going in and out. <laughs> at, you know what I mean? <laughs> that is yeah, absolutely like the 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 black mole of like. Okay, I know what we're doing now. Uh, but yeah, so to anyone that has seen Mask of the Phantasm, I I think. It is such a powerful story, you know, and it has stuff that appeals to kids, which is that it's very visually stunning. Um, it, the, the music is amazing and it has really cool action sequences in it. But the story behind it is so melancholy and dramatic in a way that I think tracks with adults and tracks with kids. Uh, I, I don't want to recap the plot because I, I, I don't like when podcasts do that ad nauseum, but um, still to this day, I, I think even with removing the nostalgia glasses, I think Mask of the Phantasm is my favorite Batman film because they cram so much story and so much drama into, maybe you can look this up now, I think it's 81 minutes long. It is such let me, a let me fucking lean film. Yeah, it's an hour and it's actually an hour and sixteen minutes. Seventy-six uh, minutes long, and that film has more story in it than ninety percent of films that have come out. Seriously, yeah. And I remember being a kid, and I remember, you know, 
in a lot of ways, I think this was the first time, you know, Disney does this on a very shallow level. Disney is very good at providing entertaining films where they get kids invested in what's happening to the principal characters. Sure. But I think even when you're a kid, there, there is this sort of heightened storybook element to their films that, that sort of prevent the stories from, from really penetrating deeply. Like, and, and this is just me talking about my experience. I love Disney films. I grew up with, you know, like Toy Story, Mulan, Lion King, Beauty and the Beast. These are terrific stories that are, are moving and thrilling in their own ways. But I think Batman Mask of the Phantasm was the first film I saw that felt like it, it penetrated into the core of my soul. Sure. The, the idea that Batman isn't just this guy who looks fucking cool and just kicks criminals asses, but like he's a human being who 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 suffers and who experiences uh, uh, tragedy and loss and regret and guilt. Yeah. I, I, I don't want it to sound like I'm putting myself over as a kid. I, I, I was I was a derpy, airheaded kid like everyone else was. But as a testament to the people that made this film, the film is strong enough for you to feel that even when you're young. And I really think that Phantasm was like the first time that I felt all the emotional things a film can do on a level that wasn't superficial on a level that wasn't surface yeah yeah i care when simba's dad dies but it's like i i I know that they're pulling strings and doing this thing also they're fucking lions and even as a kid you're like (laughs) there's there's a little bit of removal but to see bruce bruce wayne cry at his parents grave because he met someone that he cares about and he he doesn't want to fight crime anymore and he says to them i i didn't i'm sorry i didn't I didn't count on being happy. Even as a kid, that tracked to me. And I think in a lot of ways, Phantasm was my brain coming online to, oh, films are not just watching cool shit. It's, it's, these are things that are designed to make us connect to the characters on a, on a deep emotional level. There's something about this era and, and prior um, with with uh, movies that were primarily directed toward kids, maybe not even only exclusively, but just primarily. Yeah. Um, because even watching, like I rewatched in 2011, I think it was maybe 2013, somewhere around there. I, I rewatched the X Men animated series from 92 to mm-hmm. 90. I don't remember when. And uh, that show fucking rules. Yeah, it still rules because it has a similar type of uh, um, maturity to it, where yeah. despite it clearly being made for children. Um, the narrative is actually really heavy. You yeah. know what I mean? And there's there's a lot going on. And when you watch, um, with the exception of a lot of like Pixar editions with stuff like Up and Wall-E, which have like a huge emotional resonance to me, um, mm-hmm. I I as soon as you mentioned Disney, I, I started thinking about that more. And it feels it's almost like uh, some movies are like uh, seeing animals in a zoo, like. Like you're, you have this thick glass protecting you, no matter how close they get. Right. You do not feel a certain level of fear that if you saw these creatures behind an eight foot fence, and there's a chance they could jump that thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, no, like there's a whole really lot more analogy. fear there, right? Like there's still a protection, but it's like there's a whole lot more to think about. Yeah. Than just uh, something being completely isolated behind 
uh, an impenetrable force, right? And so, like, um, whenever you watch Disney, it feels like the zoo version, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and some again, some of those I love some of those movies, like you said, and and I get emotional um, response, especially to that older stuff. Um, mm-hmm. But a lot of the newer stuff, you know, um, a lot of stuff that I've seen on people's top ten lists at the end of the year, and I'm giving them like threes and three and a halfs. Because I'm just not getting like yeah. I feel like I'm seeing it behind a zoo exhibit glass. You know what I'm saying? Like yeah. there's just something. Whereas these movies back he- back then, uh, the non uh, like core Disney stuff, at least when you have stuff like uh, uh, Neverending Story, you know what I mean? Yeah, like, dude that that movie has a full range of emotions when you watch that shit as a kid. Absolutely. You know what I mean? Like it's traumatizing almost because of that fucking horse that dies. In the fucking swamp. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. <laughs> There's so much going on. I don't know. But anyways, my point is, like, that's that's interesting. This falls into that category, I think, where Absolutely. I don't remember it. I've, I saw it when I was that young as well. I was like nine yeah. or something, eight or nine when this came out. Uh, so uh, I don't I need to. It makes me want to go back and watch it. Honestly, oh, man. Because- you should, honestly, you should watch it with your daughter, because I, I think another thing that's really interesting about the film is I think if you were to like. Uh, break it up into all right. This is an action scene. This is like a Bruce's personal life scene. I think it's like, like by elapsed time, it's like more of a romance drama than it is like an action thing. I mean, there's this this crazy action sequence in this like Tomorrowland, this dystopian derelict Tomorrowland at the end that's just fantastic, but. There's like three scenes of action and the movie is more this combination of like mystery and romance drama. And I, I it really doesn't come across as, um, you know, for boys or for kids or, or any of the things that I, I think so, so typically, you know, companies want everything to fall into this thing. It's, it's, it's weirdly what Marvel is trying to do nowadays where they're trying to make a film that's, you know, four quadrant. It's, it can appeal to every demographic and every age group. Paradoxically, Phantasm does a better job and tells a better story doing that in this era where, you know, from what I understand of the production, they were mostly left alone. I mean, they, they did this film very quickly for very little money and it was kind of like a surprise success, you know? Uh, definitely yeah. worth seeing. And anyone listening um, who hasn't seen it, it, it's it's so worth 76 minutes out of your life to see. Yeah. Dude, yeah. Fantastic yeah. score by Shirley Walker, too. I, you'll you'll this will come up a couple of times in our list. But I, I think music obviously is, is so, so powerful when it's paired with certain visuals. And it yeah. really makes an impression on me. And uh, Shirley Walker's. Uh, score for this is just on a next level in an era where <laughs> there there was not a lot of people doing stuff at the level that that she did stuff for this film yeah yeah so i see some other titles on there i want to talk about soundtracks yeah uh, broadly before we get into it but there are better films to kind of like dig into and uh just so we can for the sake of brevity here we'll move we'll move on to yep. the next one because because you jump five years here we have Batman Mask of the Phantasm was was kind of a, the initial lens foundational creation yeah. thing or whatever. Um, and you kind of move on and you get you get a bit older uh, and you see the movie Bowfinger. In yeah. 1999. 
Tell me about this one. I honest, to be honest, I don't even know if I've ever watched this. I know what it is. It's the Eddie yeah. Murphy thing, right? Yeah. It's, yeah. It's, I don't know if I've actually ever watched this. So you're going to have to walk yeah. me through how this affected you because this is one of those movies where it's like almost like a cult film where like sure. it's not some huge success these days. Like people don't look no. back on it. You're not getting some super special edition uh, Blu-ray of this shit. Uh, but like, I know a lot of people that love this movie, not unlike something yeah. like death, the smoochie or, right. you know what I mean? Like, like some of those movies where, uh, like they're just kind of a little under the radar for contemporary yeah. audiences, but some people just have a love in their heart. Where does, why is this on here? Yeah. So I'm nine or 10 and I see it in theaters with my family. And this is the first time I sort of became aware that movies themselves were made by people and were made by these people that live in Hollywood. And not everyone is a huge celebrity. Not everyone is, is rich or comes from money. The, the plot in brief is, you know, Steve Martin is sort of this aging director that, that has never really done anything of of major significance and he has this sort of coterie of hollywood hopefuls around him and he sort of concocts this plan to shoot a movie uh with eddie murphy who who plays like you know the biggest action star you know in the world in the flick yeah. he concocts this plan to shoot a movie sort of stealing shots of eddie murphy and and acting like he was supposed to be in the movie all along and um the film is really funny. It's really clever. I actually rewatched it a couple months ago and it still holds up. Again, I don't think this is solely nostalgia goggles for me. Yeah. Um, one of the things that, that, that's really funny about it is <clears throat> they're following Eddie Murphy around, stealing footage of him, having actors just walk up to him and say their dialogue. But Eddie Murphy is like a borderline paranoid schizophrenic in the film. So the big rub is the one guy they choose to do this to is like already losing his fucking mind because he thinks like aliens are trying to abduct, abduct him. So it, it becomes this, this, this really kind of exaggerated comedy when he's, he starts losing his mind. And that's just like <laughs> one little extra rub to the plot that I think a lot of people might sort of gloss past because, you know, even without that, it's still, you know, this sort of perfect comedy premise but yeah the reason it's on the list is because i i saw it at the perfect age where it 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 was the first time that i that i really kind of became aware that the people that make these movies have these crazy lives where not everything works out and what you actually need to put in to make a film is sometimes ridiculous but that there's also this camaraderie in making a film that, that you can you can see film production almost like this team sport where you're relying on all these other people. The, the, the director can't do everything himself. He needs actors. He needs crew. He needs money people to, to, to convince that this is worth telling. Yeah. And this was really, I, I think, in the, in the reality of my timeline, the first time that I, I saw that kind of documented as a story in a way that really took, that was also entertaining and also made you care about these people, you know, because yeah. it, it's very much a shaggy dog story of this this crew that's just trying to put something out that people like, you know? Yeah. 
Yeah, he. It's uh, directed by Frank Oz, also, which is also interesting yeah. to me. Directed uh, by which Nick I had no Lee idea. Slash Yoda. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Weird, yeah, because he already brought up Star Wars. Like the subtle Frank Oz influence on my childhood is. Kind there of you a- go. There you go, man. Because I mean, the Dark Crystal, a bunch of the Muppet movies, of course, yeah. little Little Shop of Horrors, <laughs> and What About Bob? Uh, the movie I like to put over, and I have been putting over for a while, is the. Uh, the Hulu show, the Derek Doguadio's uh, in and of itself, mm. uh, like hour, maybe a little over an hour uh, special on Hulu. And it was in my top 10 favorite. Like I called it a movie. I will still argue it is. Yeah. Um, though it does have a rating of TVMA. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, but I'm counting it. It was in my top 10 last year because it's so fucking good. Um, but anyways, yeah. So Bowfinger, yeah, I I need to go back and watch this, man. This is uh, this is just one of those movies that I've seen for forever. Uh, I I always I've always of course known about it, um, but yeah, I just didn't I didn't know because part of the thing too is Eddie Murphy plays some geek that looks like Eddie Murphy, and that's how they get yeah. the rest of the shots. So it's, it's like part of the, was, the humor. This was during an era where like you know he wanted to play multiple roles in in yeah. all his flicks, and I I think it's funny too because you might need to correct me on the dates here, but I think this was sandwiched between his two nutty professor flicks, which in those movies, that's when he was just like, I'm going to play like every named character. That's not like the second or third biggest character. And what's interesting about Bowfinger is it was almost like him dialing it back. It's almost like, well, let me just play two, but make it like a really interesting dynamic. And yeah, this is still, man, this is still when he was on top of his fucking game. You know, same I'm with waxing, Steve Martin. Yeah, same with Steve. I, I'm waxing nostalgic, obviously, because of, you know, where I was, you know, just mentally when I saw it. But it is still such an entertaining film. And Murphy is, I mean, I, I like both of his performances in the film. But as Kit Ramsey, the like unhinged star that like believes in conspiracies and like think aliens are trying. He yeah. is so fucking good. And, and so many of his lines are, are quotable and, you know, within my nuclear family, we will just throw them out and, and everyone around us who's not you know, just thinks we're insane. So that's <laughs> yeah, you were right. By the way, this is a nutty professor was 96 and the second one was literally the film after Bowfinger. So, yeah. um, Wow, yeah. So, so you know, 94, you see Batman, Mask of the Phantasm. It just kind of blows your mind as a kid. Mm-hmm. And then you watch Bowfinger and you realize, oh, wait, it's not just people, like, making home movies and then becoming famous. Yeah. Uh, this is, like, a whole cast and crew. This, this whole city but, where weird stuff happens. Yep. But then out of nowhere, the same year, yeah. you travel... You travel through space and time back oh, yeah. to 1968, and you see 2001: A Space Odyssey. Yeah, holy fuck, yeah. bro! So this is, and I promise to anyone listening, after after talking about seeing 2001 at like age nine, my list gets way less pretentious. So I'm, <laughs> I want all the listeners to know that, like, this is the last, like. Yeah, I was listening to Trout Mask Replica when I was in second grade. I love Beefheart, man. It gets significantly less. But no, there. I, I think the reason I put this on the list, not only because 
it had a huge impact on me is, is because I, I have just such a lucid memory of seeing it for the first time. And, and the story behind this one is um, back in the day, before uh, television sets could be flat, they were, they were quite large. If you wanted a big screen TV, I mean, that it's taken up half the fucking room. You remember this. You remember yes, this. Yes, I do. Pre-flat screen. Um, well, a lot of dad, times they were considered TV cabinets. Right, right, yeah. We go way far. It's like, now we got to buy credenzas. We have to buy furniture if we want a good TV. This yeah. is a post-credenza, pre-flat screen era. Uh, my dad, who, who, you know, has always been a cinephile, uh, uh, taught film electives, on the side from you know being an English teacher in high school, uh, obviously audiovisual super important to him because it was a big part of his life and a big part of what we would do as a family. Uh, my dad gets a I believe seventy seven inch TV, which <laughs> what the fuck? Where did you even put that? <laughs> so pre flat. I want people to think about pre flat screen like how big that actually is real and, quick real quick hold on, yeah. hold on these are these 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 were projectors essentially so yeah. you're the bigger the screen the further back the, yeah the back of the tv had to be it because it to had go. to essentially project right this onto the screen right um i love how we have to fucking say this like we're not talking to people that are probably our age but for the those of you who don't know this now. world um, the also, world I think I today. have more grays than you now, which is like insane. I just want to pontificate on that. Well, it's only because I don't have hair. <laughs> uh, but anyways, <laughs> but uh, uh, 77 inch TV or around there. I'm sure my dad will listen to this and, and send me a text about how I'm wrong. But we're, we're in the 70s and I knew it's being delivered to the house. And this is like, you know, Operation Dumbo Drop. This is like, I, I just remember being woken up at like 8.30 a.m. on like a Sunday morning. And there's like multiple people downstairs that I can hear trying to lug this monstrosity into our living room. And I'm half asleep and I can hear them moving it in and I can hear my dad setting it up. And then I can hear the film he puts on to test the TV. And I come oh, downstairs man. and it's, I see a bunch of like apes running around primordial dusty landscape. And it's the Dawn of Man sequence of 2001. And my dad just says, do you want to watch this with me? And is I have this no on idea. DVD or is this on Laserdisc? Or I want to say, I want to say it's early DVD. Probably. Because I'm okay. trying to think of the timeline. If, if it's 99 or 2000, I got my first uh, DVD player in 99 and it had already been. Yeah. Out, so, yeah. Yeah. So I sit down and I watch it with him and it's kind of one of those situations where I think if, if I was still pick, you know, I was still a kid, right? I think if he had pitched watching it to me, I, I would have poo pooed it. I would have nixed it out of, it sounds boring. It's yeah, whatever. I don't know who's Stanley Kubrick. You know, you don't know any of these yeah. things when you're a kid. But just the, the timing of, of hearing this thing. I mean, there's an obvious joke here about the TV itself being like the monolith in 2001. <laughs> that is just like so, you know, direct, so out there. But is I don't know. Maybe... The, were you still living in the old house that I visited? Yeah. yeah. Where did it even go? I mean, so it, it went, was a it, nice size house, but it went, the way the rooms were laid out. It went, they the way I remember it is 
almost like you're lowering a coffin into a grave. They, they had straps on the bottom that they used to slide it down the stairs into that, wow. into that sub-basement of the family room. Wow. I said okay. living room just because I don't want to explain the house. No, 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 yeah. We don't need to talk about, you know, tri-level <laughs> houses or whatever, but yeah. that's fine. They, it okay. took multiple people to slide it down the stairs. And I, I just remember the, the, yeah, the first movie my dad chose to watch to test it out was 2001. And I just walked. I don't remember where my mom is, but I don't remember her being there. Um, I just sat down with my dad and watched this weird movie that I, I probably wouldn't have otherwise if it wasn't just this novel morning, this novel screening experience. And I just you watch that as a kid. You watch that as an adult if you've never seen it and nothing prepares you for it. But yeah. for me, I mean, I, I, I really think that was the first time I saw something that you could like deem as abstract art. You know what I mean? Yeah. Obviously, you know, we could do a whole podcast on interpreting it. But when you see that when you're nine, it it just looks like a series of things that cohere just because you're on some level aware that the people that made it wanted you to watch these vignettes in a specific order, you know, and nothing prepares you for it. And I, I think I would have had that same experience with something else that is, is sort of similarly abstract. If, if my dad had chosen to test his TV watching Eraserhead, Maybe I would have been you know, more scarred for life, more traumatized. Yeah. But I think I would have had a similar experience watching it. Um, 2001 just became kind of my first entrance into, hey, this can be abstract too. This isn't yeah. necessarily a, a prince trying to win back the kingdom or you know, whatever linear story you're used to seeing up until that point. And yeah, it, um, you know, nothing yeah. prepares you for it. Just yeah. Yeah, dude, I feel like nothing prepares me for it every time because when I yeah. first saw it, I, of course, saw it after um, 2003 when I got in the film and I started, uh, I, I don't think, I, I don't know if it was because of Kubrick or because it was just a famous sci-fi movie and I liked sci-fi movie. I couldn't remember. But I, I'm pretty, uh, we'll say it was Kubrick. I, I mean, I had seen The Shining. I remember I got like the box set that had all the white cases and like yeah. the kind of uniform covers. Because mm-hmm. um, I I believe, I probably saw this when I worked at Dave's video. So uh, that was like 2005 or so. And anyways, I remember watching this. And like you said, I had never seen anything like it. I don't know if I've actually ever seen anything like it since. But my point is, I've never seen anything like it. And uh, I didn't get it, of course, which I mean, I don't know if anyone truly does, right. but the part of the fun is coming up with like of the course. theories and, and and how cerebral it can be and how just what an experience it is. Right. So yeah. I'm like watching it. And I didn't get it, but I just knew I liked whatever it was. Right. Mm-hmm. And then I proceeded to watch it probably once every couple years, two to three years. But every time I'm not prepared for it, you know what I'm saying? Because you you remember, like when I think about that movie, I think of the uh, main uh, space dude, (laughs) astronaut, when he's like jogging on like the rotating thing. And it's like, that's just like a really slow moment, right? Mm -hmm. I think of the apes, of course, but I also think of like all of these really slow moments. And I just never kind of feel like watching it, but I don't feel that when I'm watching it. Right. You know what I'm saying? Right. But like I remember these I misremember these things. 
So whenever I, I watch it, I'm like, man, that's that's probably top three Kubrick, but it'd never be number one. Maybe maybe yeah. even four. I don't know. And then I watch it, I'm like, this is the fucking greatest movie yeah. I've ever watched. It, like, I, it's my know, favorite you know Kubrick what, movie. Man, I, I have such a similar experience with it. It it always seems in your mind like this slow, dull, challenging, but ultimately rewarding thing. But then when you're watching it, you're, you it's so easy to get caught up in it. <laughs> And I say that to the film's credit because that movie is like 2.30 and it it never feels that long when you're watching it. Never. never. Which, which never. is such a testament. You can have a long movie that doesn't feel long because you're throwing a lot of shit at the audience. But that is a long movie that doesn't feel long that has just endless shots and scenes in it. So... And, and it's I, one of those things too, as as the movie is restored over and over and over yeah. and over and over and over, <laughs> and the higher definition, it's like somehow Kubrick had some sort of like, uh, you know, like forward thinking where he could see yeah. into the future because it's like he made this movie that seems to just look better and better. Yeah. And better every time it's restored. Unlike someone like a Hitchcock, for example, where his movies look awesome, but when you watch like a super HD version of it, like Psycho, right. you see where they would put like still images versus like. Right. You know what I mean, like you see the seams a lot more. You, you know? see the seams a lot more, right? But uh, and and it's, I mean, I I don't care. But my point is though, you can notice those things. Yeah. But dude, not with Kubrick. Like every one of his movies, it was like they're they're timeless in that way. There are other there are other ways that one might argue, that, you know, they that you can see their time. But for me, I just think they're they're I wouldn't have tattooed this movie on my body had I not loved it right. so yeah. much. It's a constant daily reminder yeah. uh, I, that I, I, think, uh, I love it. Uh, another sort of autobiographical thing to to link in here is that that's also one of his few movies that I think uh, like a child can see. And, you know, there there's not a lot of. Like a lot of his movies are like way more extreme and intense in terms of graphic content. Well, he follows so. this up with an X-rated movie, and this is right. a G. <laughs> right. yeah. It's G. It's G, which is kind of insane too, because I I feel like if you were to re-release it, it would be you know when they PG give a movie at best. Yeah, they they would give it a, a higher rating, and then when you see the reasons why, it's like it's kind of nonsense. It's like, yeah. it would be like PG 13 and for why it would be like for thematic elements. And you're like, <laughs> all right, yeah, whatever. Like I get it, but it is funny when they're like, that's the MPAA's way of saying like, just, it just, tr it just cause trust us. It's, yeah. it's that vibe. But um, I think it's important to point out this winds up being the first Kubrick film I see. I'm nine or 10 and I don't see another Kubrick movie for I think five or six years, which, which doesn't seem like a long time, but you know, when you compare a nine-year-old to a 15-year-old, a 16-year-old, it that's significant. And so during this period of time, your your my frame of reference for Kubrick was 2001, which you know, I think you can argue is his most influential film, at least. So, you know, I'm nine, I see 2001 there's trailers for like eyes wide shut and it, I don't know what it is. I'm not allowed to see it because it's art, <laughs> but you yeah. just see these like sensual images to the baby did a bad, bad thing. And I'm like, Oh my God. Like I, I'm never going to be able to watch that. It's just, it's just, it's, yeah. it's when your frame of reference is 2001 as a kid and you watch a trailer like that, you're like, well, whatever that is, it's that guy. 
Dude, so it it's, ha- it's got to be really intense, you know? Can, I know I'm going off script here, but can we just take just a second to talk about Eyes Wide Shut real quick? Because yeah. you just you, you pinpointed a really important thing. Uh, because when I was a kid, well, yeah. I, I was a teenager at that point, I guess. Uh, how old was I? 19, 14, something like that. Yeah. Uh, whenever the trailers for, for Eyes Wide Shut were coming out. And you're right. It had this this provocative yeah. uh, nature to it where it's like, I will never be old enough <laughs> to watch this movie. You know what I mean? Man. Um, and, and, and I still it, don't it, feel it, old enough to watch it when I'm watching it. I'm like, Shit, I know it feels so like, yeah. I, I know. And it's funny thinking of the other movies that are on your list, but that's fine. Uh, <laughs> uh, perhaps um, um, uh, something for a podcast in the future. Um, I don't think Eyes Wide Shut is his best film. It is my favorite which I know is, is very so controversial. Interesting. No, no, no. Yeah, that's and interesting. I think the idea that it's about anything other than like, yo, you're going to want to cheat, but it's not good to cheat. Like, that's what that movie is about. I think every interpretation of like it being about the illum- it's utter and complete dog shit. And all of that is this film Twitter, Reddit culture that wants people to feel above the movies if they feel like there's some hidden latent message that they are the ones, they are the supreme decoders that know what's actually going on. It's (laughs) utter and complete nonsense. And if you do any reading about Kubrick, you will know he, he is too much of a precise perfectionist guy as a director to leave the meaning of his film like to chance. It's utter insanity. The movie is one of the best movies about, if not the best, where I, I think it's this, it's this crazy Baroque story that I really do think the message of that movie is, yo, you're going to want to cheat. It's like, good that you don't. <laughs> Something for a future podcast, maybe. I know. I would love this because we yeah. should we should pick out... Uh, our, we should do a double feature. We should pick out our two, like my favorite Kubrick years. Yeah, which is, I love that's that. really yeah. hard for me because mm-hmm. on on top lists, I usually just have a placeholder for Kubrick, and I yeah. just put whatever I'm yeah. thinking that whatever, day. Right, whatever like, the last one you watched. Yeah, it, that, because yeah. it really is almost impossible for me to choose. It's it's tough. Mm-hmm. It's easier for me to choose what's lower on the list. But when yeah. you get to the top, right, like right. six of his movies could be the thing. <laughs> Yeah. So anyways, um, back back to your list here. So uh, we will do that, by the way. We should cool. do that. Maybe we'll do it for his birthday or something. That's Great. coming up. Um, so uh, I'm so hyped about this one because, you know, you again, uh, Batman, Mask of the Phantasm, Bowfinger, 2001 A Space Odyssey. And then we hop up. Now, now you're a preteen. Yep. All right. And uh, you finally get a, a, an old taste of the uh, Miyazaki anime. Yeah, and man. You, I don't know if you'd seen anything prior to this, but either way, you get to see Princess Mononoke, which at this point was four years old, something like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and how yeah. did how did you ever? I never heard of these movies growing up, actually, until sure. I was older. Uh, so, like, how did you find out about these? And uh, where does yeah? Where, how did Miyazaki into your life? So important to point out that this was the first Miyazaki movie I'd I'd ever seen. And I believe I was aware of Japanese animation conceptually when I saw it because I would go to Comic-Con with my dad every year. And this is, I mean, I just sound like an old man that is, you know, Walt Kowalski grumpy on my porch, but this was before anime was anything close to the subculture that yeah. it was today. The Dragon only, Ball Z, 
Yeah. Like that shit. Yeah. You know, so now that I think about it, I was aware of Dragon Ball Z. I, I wasn't a zealot, but if I'm thinking about the timeline, Dragon Ball Z has been on Cartoon Network for a couple years at this point. So I'm aware of anime vis-a-vis having friends that were really into Dragon Ball Z and going to Comic-Con every year with my dad where there would be like tape traders, you know, selling like the stuff yeah. that we couldn't get here. But I really think this was like the first, I I was fine with Dragon Ball Z, but I didn't really get into it. It was, it was every time it was on, it was kind of just on in the background. Yeah. You know, I, yeah, I had yeah, friends yeah, that were, that were sort of, like I said, zealots for it, but um, hadn't seen Miyazaki, hadn't really taken to anime, which can again on on the whole was was nowhere near the subculture that it is today and this was a case of being able to grow up in the suburbs of chicago you know chicago is not new york and not la when it comes to you know revival theaters and stuff like that but it is still i mean chicago's you know the still the third you know biggest metro area in the country and when cool stuff would come out me and my family were always able to drive downtown to see it and if I remember correctly, I saw this at Piper's Alley downtown, which if anyone's listening yep. from the Chicagoland area that is you know, close to my age, they should remember Piper's Alley. Um, the funny story about this is I didn't want to go. I have a very, very explicit memory of like, you know, just being a kid that doesn't want to eat anything that's not PB&J or chicken tenders. I was just very much like, I don't want to, fucking go downtown this movie is called princess mononoke it sounds like it's for fucking girls i don't know what that is i don't know what anime is i don't like it do i have to read subtitles it's 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 like a classic case of like the kid that is kind of being you know averse to anything (laughs) different that kid should have uh, grown up and went to ball state and abided by the list i know right 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 right. (laughs) just kidding (laughs) but but to that end, this sort of cliched analogy I'm making of, of youth and childhood, it was it was how that story always ends, where if you take a chance, you might be supremely rewarded. So I went to see this flick with my parents not wanting to see it, thinking it's some bullshit fairy tale for girls because it has princess in the title. And it it fucking blows me away. Also, being afraid you have to read subtitles is really funny when in reality. This is widely considered to be the best English language dub of any foreigner animated film that's ever come out because they had that 90s Weinstein money behind it, you know? Yeah. yeah. So no, the- there's an additional irony in being like, do I have to? Oh, no, not only do you not have to do the thing that you're being a little punk and worried about with. But you get to hear fucking Billy Crudup, Mini Driver, Claire Danes. Yep. Billy really Bob Thornton. Giving great voice performances. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What I mean, what a fucking movie. Like it's at this point, unbelievable. you know, I, I at this point, my mind was anime is either I didn't see Mononoke for until years later. However, yeah. um, I didn't watch a lot of anime either. So in my mind, I always went to, yeah, I know that there is some like kind of regular or dramatic um, anime, but anime is either Dragon Ball Z and like kids morning cartoons or it's right. fucked. Yeah, all yeah. I'd ever seen was like Akira and mm-hmm. Vampire Hunter D 
and the sequel to that, and really like uh, like Wicked City, let's say like fucked, yeah, fucked anime. Okay, like really, uh, just like mind bendy messed up stuff. Yeah, and then and I loved it, but I just didn't. And I'd seen I don't know if I, by the time I watched Princess Mononoke, I had already seen uh, like Cowboy Bebop and and a, a few things like that, like the TV series. Um, but uh, anime had a very specific thing in my mind, like what it was. And the first one I saw was actually Spirited Away, right. which is my favorite. Uh, and uh, I, that was my introduction to Miyazaki. I w- and, and I never turned back. I couldn't. It was like, holy shit, this is what... It was like me seeing Akira again, but a different, like a completely yeah. different side of anime. You know what I mean? And uh, watching Princess Mononoke and seeing some fucker get decapitated or something because it was like well, a, yeah, a mean, PG-13. It's like his most like kind of like uh, uh, intense, maybe you might say, or, or uh, graphic, you know, and graphic, I, I that's think the word. that's one of the reasons why this this is one of the first films I thought of after giving your get, getting the, the prompt from you, because I think in a lot of ways, the the groundwork of the story of that film, Princess Mononoke, is rooted in like a Disney-esque fairy tale adventure, but not being, you know, not not having an acuity for Japanese culture at age 11 or 12 or however old I was when I saw this. A, nothing prepares you for it, but B, it's such a great like evolution of that Disney framework, because you're, you're given a main character who is, who is very much from a Disney mold. You know, he's this prince, there's something special about him, but he's a little fucked up and there's this thing he's got to undergo. And, you know, through the process of doing this journey, he'll save the world and, you know, uh, learn all this stuff about himself and grow into a different person. Right. That, that is what that has in common with Disney. But what this film adds on top of that, is fucking crazy if you're not used to it. It's yeah. it's decapitations, it's warring states. I don't I don't know if I, you know this obviously in the reality of Japanese culture takes place, you know, much much you know before that. Yeah. But there's war in it. There's people fighting gods. There's this weird spirituality that you know in Japanese culture is much more intrinsic to any folktale they would say, but doesn't really exist as much in Disney because they, they want to keep Disney kind of secular in a way, but it's, it's much more intrinsic to the story of Princess Mononoke. There's this, I remember even at that age, I, I was so drawn to this story about like this, this Romeo and Juliet romance between Ashitaka and this wolf girl and how like, Oh man, they totally dig each other, but like they're they can't be together. <laughs> I was the perfect age where that stuff really sort of tracks with you because you're you know eleven and twelve, and you're kind of at that age where you're starting to you know have you know let's say like perennial crushes in school and yeah. stuff. You know what I mean? Yeah. So that I think really struck a chord with me more than the way Disney would go about it, which was always very linear. You know. So all these things, it was like this perfect evolution of a type of storytelling that that I grew up with. And I think a lot of other people grew up with, but everything is more heightened and everything is just stronger and more unique and better. I mean, even to have a villain that is, in essence, 
you know, Lady Eboshi is is kind of the primary villain of that film. But like, even acknowledging that, you can see shit from her perspective far more than Jafar, far more than Scar. Who, you know, we can do the fifteen minute dumb video essay. Ooh, why Scar was actually right about everything. But let's be honest, <laughs> they, they're villains to be villains, and and Eboshi is a villain who we kind of understand where she's coming from. And we see the complexity in that, hey, she's the biggest impediment to the people we really like getting what they want, but she's kind of doing a lot of good too. So there's a complexity in the storytelling that I think trumps, you know, everything I'd seen up to that point, as far as, you know, fairy tales, as far as adventures go. The uh, uh, Kevin Smith movie, Red State, yeah. Did we watch that together? We watched that together. And I, I thought we I, did actually. You got me hopped up on coffee at like 10 p.m. because I wasn't I know, dude. coffee a it lot at the time. So awesome. Good, good and, memories, man. Yeah. <laughs> we watched Red State. And I remember um, like when, uh, what's his name? Michael um, Parks, I think. Parks. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Michael Parks. He gives a 20 minute one take monologue about why they basically hate gay people and are going to kill them. Because for mm-hmm. anybody who doesn't know Red State, uh, go watch it because it's so ridiculous. But it's the insane. first half of it's like a weird horror movie, and then the second half is like an action movie. It's wild, and it's Kevin Smith, which is weird. But it's uh, it's uh, a movie about these people acting like the Westboro Baptist Church, basically. But like the super extreme, even to them version. Yeah, Westboro and so, mixed with like Waco. Yeah, 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 yeah. It was it's it's pretty wild. So, anyways, um, but one thing I loved about that movie though is that Michael Parks gives this whole all this rhetoric about why they believe what they believe. And I'm watching and I'm like, that's bullshit. But what's crazy is it's like, but I know people that don't believe that thing, but that believe things that are equally as wild as this. Right. And I believe these people would be willing to go to these links. Of course, it's an exaggerated version. Of course. um, The fact that I could kind of get behind the villain in terms of, Okay, I see your perspective. I think you're insane and full of shit. But like I get you, right? I can at least yeah. understand why you're doing what you're doing. I think that's really important to me. Um and, and it's part of what makes for some people something like Heath Ledger's Joker so exciting for them because you get the same situation but part of it is he doesn't have that. Right. Like like it it is anarchy. It is nothing, right? Yeah, like the, the omission of that is what makes it terrifying. Yeah, and but also the omission of that gives you everything you need to know in the right. same way that Michael Parks gives you everything he needs to know in that in that yeah. 20 minutes. So like there are different ways to develop it, but you're right. Like this is so different and if I'm not mistaken, uh I'm and I I think maybe this may have changed hands. Um uh, but at that time I'm pretty sure Disney had the distribution and uh and uh dubbing rights to yeah, these uh Miyazaki movies because a lot of people after this uh, called the uh, Miyazaki and Studio Ghibli movies or Ghibli, whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. What do you call it? I say Studio Ghibli. I do too. We're going to call I, it. I don't, Fuck everyone says I don't, hard G. I don't tomato, right. tomato. It's yeah. <laughs> whatever you want. So anyways, uh, but Studio Ghibli was like the Disney of Japan. I'm sure you've heard that before. Yeah. I don't I don't like I get what people mean by that, but it's like so different. Yeah. Also, and you pinpointed the differences, which is what I'm getting to, because there's so much um, there's so much attention paid to things that are often so black and white and just laid out in a lot of animated movies we get today. Yeah. Um, 
And I think Princess I think Mononoke's fucking great, man. They they knew that too because it it was Disney, but it was Disney through Miramax, who if yeah. if we think about where we are in the timeline, they would have acquired that in the late '90s when Miramax was just at the end of just that crazy like everything they put out from from Pulp Fiction to like Shakespeare, something like Shakespeare in Love. They were just hitting home runs. So I, I think Disney putting it out through Miramax was sort of, I mean, now we when we hear Miramax, we think of other things. But yeah, yeah, yeah. what are you going to do? I think at the time it was like a thumbprint for, you know, giving it a sort of like like credibility that 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 if it had the Disney branding, maybe it wouldn't have as much that, hey, this is an animated film, but it it is it is part of this, you know, it is part of this roster that includes Pulp Fiction. You know, it's part of this roster that includes these movies that, you know, are not synonymous, synonymous with the normal Disney way of doing things. And, yeah. and obviously um, it was so wise for them to acquire it. You know, I, I think Miyazaki himself had, had a very difficult time with the way they did the dubbing. And I think Weinstein wanted cuts and it was like down to the wire. So Obviously, that was wrought. I don't want to act like the reason the movie has legs is because it came out in America. But I feel so fortunate as a kid of that age to be able to see it in such a glossy, perfect package. Because now yeah. the, the way the way some, you know, Japanese animated films get distribution is, you know, through streaming or, you know, through these things where, you know, maybe the, the dubbing is ad hoc or it doesn't get a theatrical release or theatrical release. And I'm just so fortunate that a movie of that magnitude got, I got the perfect kind of vehicle to deliver it yeah. to my consciousness, you know? Yeah, yeah. Have you have you seen Neon Genesis Evangelion? Uh, no, no. Uh, I, I've heard that. about it. And, watch and that fucking shit on Netflix. To, I listen to a lot of Thundercat, who is always referencing it, so. Yeah, <laughs> I'm just saying, the only reason I mention it is because you mentioned like the dubbing and the perfect package and Netflix put, a lot of time and effort into making because their their original dub was notoriously bad, right? Like awful. And I think you can still listen to it, um, but there's a new one that's incredible, and it's an incredible show. Anyway, so we have four more. We're gonna move a little bit more quickly, hopefully through these here. Though it's hard because I'm looking at these and yeah. I'm like, fuck, we're gonna talk forever about these. Uh, but the year after you see Princess Mononoke, you see uh, one of the outliers on the list to me, which sure. I'm very excited about. And I specifically told you to keep it because okay. yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. it's also timely because at, at this year's WrestleMania that happened a few uh, weeks ago, um, a star from this movie had a wrestling match and it was one of the best fucking matches on the card. And you all the marks to thing have already yeah. guessed what the film yeah, is. Yeah. You can, <laughs> uh, you can uh, listen to last week in wrestling to figure out what that's about. Anyways. So, <laughs> uh, Jackass the movie, yeah, year two thousand two. I believe I've seen this, but I haven't seen it since. Um, oh wow! I, but okay. <coughs> is this the one? <coughs> excuse me. Is this the one where they they uh, go to like a hardware store and take a shit in a toilet? You bet your ass. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I've I've seen this uh, because of the. I haven't seen the newest movie that came out like this year or whenever it was, maybe early yeah, this yeah, year. February. Um, yeah, February, the fourth one. And I haven't seen it yet, though I will see it before the end of the year. But it makes me want to go back and watch a lot of these movies just so I can kind of get the full vibe because this is yeah. um, MTV nostalgia for me. I mean, this is 
This was the perfect time when I started really, really getting into MTV and watching all of the reality shows and all of those things, right? Like, I was really, really into this. Um, And Jackass was uh, never, like, my favorite thing, but it was, like, so funny to me because I just think it's so funny when people get hurt and that's, like, all they do, right? Yeah. And so... um, uh, I remember my friends and I were outside of a Marsh grocery store. For those of you who don't know what that is, that is definitely something in our uh, in the region of Indiana Marsh. and the surrounding. Um, <laughs> now they're all paylesses. But anyways, um, but uh, Marsh, we, we went to the parking lot because uh, I was, of course, everyone knows I grew up in the church. And uh, after the youth group, we would go to Arby's, which sounds like a joke in and of itself. But we'd all go to this Arby's and behind the Arby's was a Marsh supermarket. So when you go there every single Wednesday, you start to, you know, you don't really want to hang out in the building anymore. You hang out outside. And so we ran and we got shopping carts from the <laughs> shopping cart thing. And we started throwing each other in them and running into shit. Oh, yeah. And it was purely because of jackass. And I remember my buddy ran me as fast as he could into a curb that on right next to it were like it was a, a median with bushes in it that were like, yeah. For six sure. feet fucking tall or something, right? Yeah. So when he ran me into it, I not I tried to launch over the bushes, but then I started landing head for like I was lawn darting down, right? Mm-hmm. So I put my hands out to stop, and I I got this huge gash on my hand. Oh, no, that was just it. It broke the skin far enough where it was like just oil. You know what I'm saying? Oh, like yeah, it was yeah, just yeah. like blood and oil, oh, and it just looked oozing. like a sausage. Yeah. Oh, dude, it was fucking gross. Luckily, I was okay otherwise. Um, but uh, yeah, we did some stupid shit. So all that "don't try this at home" shit did not work. Yeah, I mean it never worked. <laughs> I mean it, it was it was for them to protect their ass, right? It's the same thing with wrestling. It's like yeah, people that are really into wrestling are gonna fuck around with their friends. They're gonna pile drive their friend on a concrete yeah. slab. It's fine. You just hope you do it. You know, you hope you hope they know how to take their bumps at nine years old or whatever. But but to that end with Jackass, it's like. I get why they put that fucking everyone I know that was into it did their own shit. I have like four mini DV tapes of like bullshit I did with my friends in, in the jackass vein at the time. But yeah, I, so I don't about jackass. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't have a ton of stuff to say about it. And, and it, it just, it felt like it felt worthy to put on the list for two reasons. Number one is I was an only child and I, I think a theme in my life is sort of collecting older brother figures as I lily pad in different stages to my life. I mean, even the fact that I think there's a little bit of that in the, in us becoming such close friends when we met yeah. at Ball State. I, I think there, you know, I, I obviously don't resent my parents for not having any other kids or stuff, but I, I think there's yeah, a, thanks little, a lot, mom and dad. <laughs> yeah. There's a weird latent thing that I think Mark Marin talks about it a lot on his podcast when he talks about like the, you know, the, the guys at the record store, if you didn't have an older brother, it was the guys at the record store who would yeah. kind of, you know, or, or your best friends, you know, brothers, you know, older brothers. And I think in a weird way, one of, one of the reasons why Jackass took to me so much is because it, it gave me that, you know, this is what, this is like an older brother energy because they're, they're doing things that I can't do. They're doing things I don't have the balls to do. They're, they're the sort of cool role models who maybe you don't want to take after completely, but goddamn, do you want to watch them doing their thing? And dude, yes. As far as the film goes, you know, so I, that's where my brain is at when the series is out and when the movie comes out. 
But to bring that over to like a, just a filmic lens is, I don't know what you would categorize these as like, are they documentaries? No, I, I wouldn't call them documentaries, but I certainly wouldn't call them narrative films either. I don't know what they are, but I'll be damned if like every single one of them, I'm not super like melancholy when it's over. And, and it's one of the only series of films that I think legitimately every time I watch one, you know, especially for the first time is what I'm saying. I, I want it to like last fucking forever. And yeah. I don't know if you get that same energy with like a typical narrative story. They, they are hangout movies that are even a, you know, a far greater distillation of that hangout energy than even Richard Linkletter. You know what I mean? Then, then even, you know, Daisy Infused or Everybody Wants Some, which are, which are hangout movies, but you know, he's still telling a story. He's still yeah. telling something that will have a beginning, middle and end. And I think, um, you know, the first film, because I was that age, but all the films collectively, it's, it's just a great reminder that, you know, the opposite of 2001. Sometimes the point of the movie is solely entertainment and it's solely to make you fucking feel good and feel happy and laugh your fucking ass off for an hour and a half. And that is totally okay. And if anything can give you an experience that is, that is different compared to anything else you, you can watch in a theater. Yeah. I, I, I liken it to, wrestling in a way where um like when i when and i know you were into wrestling uh, a while mm -hmm. a few a few years back where you followed it um it's like uh, you watch a match some indie match or something or now AEW or something you watch this like crazy match and these guys are killing each other you know what i mean like they're doing crazy moves and you see these guys like the guys giving the moves are hurting themselves just as bad as the people yeah. taking them yeah, yeah the shit is crazy and there was a match between John Moxley and Kenny Omega, and they had a like a web of barbed wire. Yeah, it was literally just someone concocted this like machine that should be from the fucking movie Saw, and <laughs> like they get suplexed into it, and they're just stuck in it. Like, yeah. why would you do that, right? Or like people jumping off like twenty foot ladders or something. You know what I mean? Like, what this, the fuck? This element of self sacrifice. Yeah. for our entertainment that in a weird way, like you, if you want to be super pretentious, you can like, it's Mr. Bean. It's fucking, it's all these silent movie guys who would. Well, yeah, it's not, yeah, it's all Bean, that kind of nonverbal storytelling, right? Like yeah. that's all it is. But the thing is like, we watch these matches that are like that. And in my head, I feel bad. Cause it's like, fuck, this is the greatest match ever, but I don't want, I want you to be able to do this in 10 years or 20 yeah. years. And doing this, you won't like, yeah. you know what I mean? Uh, there's a guy named Darby Allen that uh, when we talk on the podcast, um, we're just like this. I give this guy five years, 10 years tops because the shit he does to his body. He's just going to he's and just going to. That's scary. He's one of the younger guys, too. He, yeah, he's like he's, he's like 23 or something. He's like he's super really young. hard. Yeah, I, I think so, I heard. Yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say I say that and I, I feel the same way about Jackass because you watch the TV show. And they still do shit that keeps you entertained, right? Because I used to watch the TV show. Mm -hmm. And you hear that classic, like, yeah, Minutemen. Or whatever that fucking, like, guitar. Yeah. So I Mike mean, Watt, D. Boone, the, from the great Minutemen, which, you know, I wouldn't know at the time. But then after the fact, you're like, oh, this band yeah. is super important. 
Yeah, dude. So like, uh, I, I watched that, and then you watch the movies, and they know it's like watching a, a TV match and then watching a pay per view. Like they yeah. know they have to go further yeah, to like really make it worth your money, right? Yeah. And it's like, fuck, man. Like taking a shit in a hardware store is one thing, <laughs> but it's like, dude. I mean, some of this other stuff, you're actually causing permanent damage to your body. You know what I'm saying? Need to see on that level. Yes, I'm very sympathetic as well. You need to see like Jackass Forever. It's it's yeah. so good. I've and heard a lot about it, and yeah, and that that was the whole that's the whole reason that uh, that Johnny Knoxville was in wrestling in the first place was to uh, the put flip. that over. But then yeah. at the same time, they just kept doing it because people loved it. I guess I don't know. That's really funny. Yeah. Um, but I, anyways, I think, uh, yeah. A final thing just to say about the Jackass yeah. movies is. Um, <laughs> I, I know Louis C.K. has been like an outspoken fan of it for a while. And he just he yeah. said he has a quote about the Jackass series that I really like in that. He says there's like a purity to it because it 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 boils life down to like these like really like, the, the you know, this reptilian essence of like life is us fucking hurting ourselves and then laughing about it. Yeah. And that there's a weird purity to that, that somehow jackass has like a main line to a lot easier than like some you know you know overwrought pretentious you know european films or you know whatever yeah fuck man i might have to go watch jackass forever today all of these you're making me want to rewatch. that's good because i i, I think <laughs> yeah. i like i said i think i've seen batman mask of the phantasm but it's been so long i, I just don't even i don't remember it mm -hmm. uh, same with the but i watched the animated series too i don't remember that either so like that's yeah. Uh, like all of that period is just uh, has been erased. And then uh, Bowfinger, I had never seen, but everything else I've seen. Um, oh, actually, there is another one on here. I'll wait till we get to it. But there actually is another one uh, that uh, I haven't seen that we'll talk about. But anyways, um, so uh, Reservoir Dogs, you saw this in 2003 or four. Yeah. And I find that fascinating. Uh, but well, looking at your age, too, later, well, looking, too young. Well, well, because I I saw that. Um, well, you know what's funny? I saw it right around the same time. I saw it in probably two thousand two, maybe early two thousand three, before yeah. I got into before I saw Amelie. Right. Um, but I didn't know what uh what a director was. So like that stuff that you learned watching Bowfinger, I didn't mm -hmm. learn. Um, yeah. So I borrowed my buddy Riley's Reservoir Dogs cassette from his dad. Watched it, thought it was like as soon as it started, I'm like, this is going to be fucking boring. And then it just ended up capturing me. And I was just like, man, that's pretty good. I didn't like love it, love it yet. But I was like, fuck, that was like way better than I thought it was going to be. And then my dad told me to watch Pulp Fiction. And he's like, dude, there's this briefcase. And then, like, every time they open it, there's this glow. <laughs> like, that yeah. was like, that's like <laughs> the only thing I remember him telling. He probably told me more. But, um, yeah. and I, I watched that. And I told another friend of mine that I watched these movies and that they should watch them. And he's like, have you seen Jackie Brown? Like, that's a Tarantino movie, too. And I was like, what's a Tarantino? Because I didn't know what this was. Of course, yeah. And uh, he was the person. And he wasn't even like a movie guy, but he just knew this much about it. And he's like, yeah, it's like the director. It's the guy that makes these movies. So it started as like directors were the end all be all, right? <laughs> like to me, because I didn't know like what producers or writers or anything were. Um, I mean, of course, people wrote these movies, but I just didn't. You don't think about that. So I, I watched uh, I rewatched Reservoir Dogs and that's when I fell in love with it. 
because I loved Pulp right. Fiction. Then I watched Jackie Brown. Kill Bill hadn't come out yet. So this had to be, like I said, 2002, early 2003, because uh, Kill Bill hadn't come out. And I believe that came out, I want to say at the end of 2003. I had to, actually, because my wife now, fun story for everybody, my wife now, uh, Amanda, we dated in 2003, and we had just broken up in 2003, because we dated for a while, broke up, and then got back together like nine years later. So we, we, uh, we were dating, we broke up, and I wanted to be around her so much still that like my buddy Riley and I were going to see Kill Bill Volume 1. And uh, we broke up in like September of 2003. So that had to have been in like November. Someone this came out. Right. And I do remember that Kill Bill Volume 2 came out like six months late. Like it wasn't a full mm-hmm. year. It yeah. was in the summer. So uh, that this tracks. But anyways, we invited my ex-girlfriend at the time to go with us. Nice. And I remember I was sad the whole time we watched Kill Bill Volume 1. <laughs> yes. Yeah. She you, sat in a chair like, and then my friend like Riley. Well, you my friend like Riley, <laughs> yeah. he, she sat there, and then Riley sat between us, and then I sat, and I just kept thinking, ah, I wish I was sitting next to her. Uh-huh. Like I was just like a sad boy the whole time. But anyways, that's neither here nor there. The point is, uh, that like these Tarantino was the first person I watched in his movies at the time, where I learned what a director was, and I could yeah. actually see it because he's such like a. Uh, hype like a, an exaggerated, easy version of that, right? Uh, not yeah. unlike a Wes Anderson or someone else, where you see their style and it's so obviously them, right? You know what I mean? Like you right. can't watch it and not see. I like. I feel like people could watch The Master and There Will Be Blood and Boogie Nights and Magnolia and maybe not put those together, right? It's a mm-hmm. bit more subtle, even though you and I. We'll watch it and go, oh, yeah, it's obviously fucking Paul Thomas Anderson. But someone might not. But I don't see how someone could watch a Tarantino movie, especially at this era, right, and not know it's – there's some similar thing holding it together. You know what I'm saying? Uh, Why is – I mean, I know your love for these movies, but where did uh, Reservoir Dogs come in and how did that influence you? So – yeah, at the risk of being redundant, there there was a lot of what you just said that hit me when I saw it for the first time. Because Reservoir Dogs was the first film I'd seen by Quentin Tarantino. Similarly to Kubrick, but a little bit different because I had seen 2001 before everything else. Tarantino is one of these guys where you, you hear the name. I had heard the name. I, I had seen, you know, the Pulp Fiction poster with, with Uma and the cigarette. And yeah. you, you're aware of something culturally but you haven't really delved yourself. And with Reservoir Dogs, I remember toys came out around this time, action figures. And I had seen the toy. What the fuck? Marvin Nash with the ear cut off and the duct tape around his mouth. And I was just like, oh yeah, that's, that's this guy Tarantino. Like, what the fuck is this movie? I remember asking my dad about it when I was a kid. Like, what is that? My dad is like, it's about a bunch of guys who do this robbery and it goes really, really wrong. And I'm like, oh, fuck, like, what does that mean? So despite the fact that I grew up in a, in a you know, home that was, that was extremely, you know, like film literate and stuff like that, my parents actually did like kind of safeguard me from like watching R-rated stuff, you know, a lot longer than I think most. I, I think as a, as a sort of connective tissue to not having any older siblings. I think a lot of people see shit from an early age, you know, through their, their brother having friends over or through like their big sister being tasked 
to watch them. And then she puts on, I don't know, Silence the Lambs or Scream or some shit. But um, I didn't have any of that. So, so parents safeguarding me, I didn't really start seeing R-rated movies until, you know, I was like 13 or 14. So Reservoir Dogs was the first one that I watched from Quentin Tarantino. And, you know, there's a similar vibe to 2001 in that nothing really prepares you for that. And again, I'm, I'm aware of a director. I'm aware of X, Y, and Z, but it had such a specific voice to it where, you know, you're, you're a kid and you're like, oh man, he's like starting his movie, just like telling us what he thinks of Madonna songs through his characters. I, I remember the stuff with uh, jumping ahead in time and they've, they've already botched the thing and Mr. Orange is injured, but like, it's like not cool. It's not action hero-y. Mr. Orange is shot and he's like bawling his eyes out and like asking this friend of his to hold him. It made me uncomfortable as like a 13 year old male, but in, in that way, that's good in that way. That's like, Oh, I'm experiencing something that is like so different than everything else that I'd seen. And I think like you said, I didn't even like immediately fall in love with the movie because sometimes the most rewarding film going experiences are when we're, you know, like kind of touched in a way that we're not expecting to be touched. And that makes us kind of go like, oh, that was weird and different. I don't know if I like that. But we, a lot of times we can't stop thinking about the movie. And then we watch it a second time or a third time. And we're like, oh man, this, this really does something different. And obviously I don't have a lot to say about Tarantino. That's, that's just not, you know, already been said in a million articles and podcasts, but uh, the guy is such a unique voice. And I think you know, love him or hate him, most people tend to remember their first time seeing one of his flicks. And Reservoir Dogs really just had that. I had never seen anything like it. I had never seen anything where, you know, the, the, the film kind of starts and stops based on dialogue, much more than, you know, the hero's goal, getting complicated. It has all that screenwriter hit these beats and this order stuff, but the way it hits them is, is, is so different and was so left of field for me at the time as a 13 year old. And, you know, the ending, it has like this weird abrupt down ending that, you know, if you're not familiar with kind of like what his thing was or, you know, what I hadn't really seen Hong Kong cinema at the time either. So I wasn't used to that either. All of it feels so new and so fresh that I, I just have a vivid memory of watching it for the first time. And this one was a sleepover, at my buddy Eric Bilheimer's house. So I told you all of these, I have lucid memories of where I was. Yeah. So yeah, that's, that's how we, that's how we, uh, only children had to see stuff. Mine was like yeah. cousins and, and close friends. You got, uh, like I said, like my buddy Riley people. showed me all that anime and all that. I mean, Reservoir yeah. Dogs, of course. I saw like horror movies at a really young age that, uh, from my friends across the street because their parents don't watch anything. So I remember watching, uh, Child's Play 3, the Chucky movie. And uh, I saw the opening sequence, and then every night that I left their house and it was dark, I would literally <laughs> run as fast as my legs would take me across the street because I knew Chucky was after me. Like, I was, like, so freaked out, right? But I watched all the Friday the 13th on Friday the 13th. Granted, right. it was on, like, USA Network or whatever, but um, all of that stuff. Uh, so, you know, we had to get it somewhere. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. This, uh, Reservoir Dogs is, dude, I mean... 
all the things you said, the performances and everything are great. I think um, the storytelling is something to pinpoint real quick because uh, I'm going to say spoiler alert, even though I don't think this really matters. But um, uh, plus the movie's like, you know, how many years old now? 30? Um, A lot. It's a lot years old. Yeah, it's a lot years old. Yeah, Mr. Orange is... uh, uh, He's shot, as you said. Mm-hmm. And you think it's kind of implied just visually that he gets shot during the heist, mm-hmm. but he actually gets shot during like by this woman. Right. You know what I mean? Like, and so it's like just these little interesting, it's that great like back and forth where they're thinking about what's happened and then it comes back to present time Think about what's happened, come back to present time. And you're getting these little tidbits of the story that just keep evolving and changing everything. Mm-hmm. Why are these people really mad at, uh, Mr. Blonde, or why are these people really right. mad at so-and-so? Or they feel a certain way about, you know, um, uh, Chris Penn's character. I forget his name right now, but... Nice Guy Eddie. Um, nice Guy Eddie. Thank you. I was like, I know it's like some, like, gangster name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just couldn't remember it, but... Um, with his... But yeah, like, with Nice Guy Eddie, like, you know... sweatsuit. <laughs> so 90s. So fucking awesome. Yeah. <laughs> so anyways, like, you, you, you see all of the characters in the opening scene, but you don't see those guys again until way fucking later. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So it's like then you see him at the beginning, everyone's hanging out. But then at the end, when you see them, it's so different. The storytelling's great. The other thing, too, is um, the, uh, you know, um, what the fuck is the dude, the uh, main dude's name? Not not Tim Roth, but uh, the other main dude. Uh, Harvey Keitel, Mr. Thank Lee. you. Jesus, fuck. Yeah. I don't know why I couldn't think of his name. But anyways, uh, but Harvey Keitel holding Tim Roth's character, right? Yeah. And... Uh, like that was that was like strange to me. Same as you. Of course, yeah. But also like even him making like whining noises in the car as right. Kaitel's like beelining to the 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 hideout, and he's just bleeding all over the back of this white leather like interior. You know, Tim Roth. I mean, and uh, like that, like it. He doesn't sound cool. Like no. you said, like he sounds almost laughable. Like I almost wanted yeah. to laugh. Pitiful. But then even he's, in the a, end, when pitiful boy, yeah. Even when Harvey Keitel cries at the end, I didn't know that's how Harvey Keitel sounds when he yeah. cries. <laughs> yeah. And so, then you're on, you see like, oh, he does that in like every other movie. He's yeah, in. well, yeah. it wasn't until I saw Bad Lieutenant and I was like, oh, yeah. fuck. That's just how he sounds when he yeah. cries. Like, I Bad thought it was Lieutenant like. Bad Lieutenant has like 60 minutes of, of Keitel wailing in it like collectively. So, dude, it's 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 wild. So my point is like there were a lot of things that I couldn't have been prepared for, but then it wasn't until I learned how important or how just normal some of these things were. Yeah. Cause think about the war movie when someone's crying out for their mom, mm-hmm. right? That's what can you just hold me is right. But right. it's a, it's right. different enough that it has like this kind of reaction. It gets a reaction, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's fucking great. I want to rewatch this now because it's been, it's been uh, too many years since I've seen it, but it's probably yeah. like five or six at least. Um, but it's fucking great, dude. I'm glad this is on your list. So, Absolutely. Uh, you 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 have two more, but we're gonna do one. Yeah. Um, and and I want to. I just want to give you just a quick chance to speak on the one we're gonna kind of skip just briefly, just because it's the other one I haven't seen. And so, oh, give okay. me your elevator pitch on why I should see it. It is uh, Gaspar Noé's climax from like 2018. Right. Um, I know you're a huge fan of Enter the Void. Yeah. Uh, you and I have um, like defended Irreversible sure. over the years about uh, that being a film I don't necessarily recommend everyone go out and watch, but I will defend it 
Absolutely. <laughs> like t- yeah. to an extent, you know, um, but climax, just give me the elevator pitch before we jump onto your last pick here. Sure. Yeah. So we're out of order a little bit. I, I felt it necessary with so many picks that are like me and my childhood to just bring up some modern ones too, because look, I think one of the great things about being into any art form is that if people are still doing it, stuff is constantly coming out and you could constantly shift and alter your perspective on the form itself. And I think that's one of the reasons why it's so rewarding as a hobby. So I, I, I was trying to think of the most recent one that would get a spot on the list. And Climax is fucking phenomenal. It's terrific. And I could not care less about dancing in movies. And one of the reasons why I put it on the list is that movie is about as dance heavy as a film can get. It's about a fucking like dancers retreat in the middle of the fucking French countryside and things go horribly wrong. There's so much dancing in it and it's so good. And it like made me care about this other thing that I've yep. never cared about in movies at all. Noise style is so pronounced and it's so explicit and it's so in your face. Some people get rubbed the wrong way by it. Um, I think he's one of the greatest living directors. Structurally, Climax is so interesting. It's sort of two halves with this very dialogue heavy thing in the middle, which is very interesting and works way more than it should on paper. Um, Everyone that is at all interested in dance in any way or just like likes noise other films at least a little bit needs to see Climax. It's it's like the last film I saw where I truly felt like I was watching something new. Yeah. Yeah. I uh, I just want to say that uh, I that I, speaking on movies that you can't be prepared for. I, I remember seeing I Stand Alone with my friend Riley. Yeah. And um, there's a point where the main character, uh, he has a pregnant sister and he just starts punching her in the stomach because she won't stop like doing whatever she's doing. And the visceral reaction I had to that, the the sick in the stomach, like I felt like horror films don't do this to me anymore. Like when mm-hmm. I was a kid and I remember I speaking of friends showing you stuff and I was at my cousin's house and we act, like we watched the unrated RoboCop VHS. Oh, yeah. And I was like, you know, seeing the dude in acid and then exploding and the jugular and all the I mean, that turned my stomach as like a nine year old kid or whatever. Yeah. Right. Um, you saw that at nine. <laughs> or, or I mean, I had to be really young because yeah. it was before I left the house that I remember right. being in. And I left that house in like 11 or 12. And I don't think wow. it was the very end. So it was nine to 11, somewhere between. So we'll just say 10. We'll just go in the middle. But my point is like, uh, yeah, that was like fucked up, man. Like that was. A lot for me. Yeah. Uh, seeing I stand alone as an adult at that point was still a lot. <laughs> still got you. Um, uh, I, I don't even know if I, I might have been 17 or 18. I don't remember. But uh, either way, it, it was a lot. And then I saw Irreversible. And of course, same response. I mean, yeah, uh, there is like trigger warning. There is a nine minute rape scene in it. And yeah. it's all it, all it is, is just a camera on a tripod and you just watch the event happen. So it's not like they're trying to like exploited they're just like no you're gonna watch this whole yeah. thing happen and we're no, gonna feel Noi, the feelings of going through this no and Noi's style is is very transgressive and it's very extreme but i i i do think it serves a purpose in his yeah. movie i haven't seen love that's the one i haven't seen yet that, yep i haven't seen that and and so ever since enter the void came out you were pitching this to me i have like four or five other friends that are like you have to see enter the void 
Yeah. And then I noticed that he put out like two or three other movies after that. Mm-hmm. And I was like, fuck it. I'm just going to do like a marathon of his stuff at some point because I just need to get caught up. And yeah. Climax is one that's actually on a list I just made, uh, which is why I just wanted to talk about it. Because I 20, uh, 2017, 18 and 19 were really dark eras for me. Like I saw maybe 30 films tops that came out those years, if that um and then uh, once I started doing this podcast in 2020, I was getting caught up with a lot. And I want to go back to those years and fill in those gaps, and one of which is a climax. So uh, I'm, I'm excited to see that. So let's jump into your last one real quick here. Yeah. Um, and uh, we're, we're, we're doing good on time. I think one more will hit us right where we need to be here. So, Great. Uh, so we're good. And you and I both absolutely adore this next movie. You saw this. I, I want you to explain to the audience how you saw this. Because you had, if I remember correctly, a unique experience that you got to see Paul Thomas Anderson's movie, The Master. If I remember, it was at the Music Box. It was, yeah. Um, Tell the people this cool story, because I was very jealous of you. And by this point, I was already, Boogie Nights was my favorite, one of my favorite films of all time, and it was my favorite of his. Um, And uh, you and I talking about movies we like versus movies we think are like the best. We used to always talk about Magnolia is the best one, but Boogie Nights is my favorite. That was always like our thing. And then, of course, There We Blood comes out and just ruins my life because it's so good. Uh, But then I so I'm fucking stoked on this movie, ready for it to come out. I'm a Mm -hmm. huge Joaquin Phoenix fan. It looks great. I hear they use the same camera Kubrick used or something. I mean, just all this shit. I'm just like gung ho. And then you tell me how you saw it. Why don't you tell everyone what happened? Yeah, so it, I really got lucky. You know, it, it had been five years, maybe more. It had been like around five years. Five, yeah. There Will Be Blood came out. And so like people, you know, the internet is now codified as this, you know, haven in a way that it was just kind of starting to be in 07. Um, at least in terms of like, you know, obviously movie sites have been around forever. But in terms of like mass you know, by, by 2012, now we have Facebook and Twitter and, and, you know, Reddit and all these places that, that really make it easy for people to stay connected without being on like esoteric angel fire, you know, websites or hot metal, (laughs) you know, mailing lists or whatever. So, so hype is big for this is all I'm trying to say. And it was a weird situation where I knew they were going to do advanced screenings of it, but my ear is not necessarily to the ground but I am on the music box theaters mailing list. And it was a weird situation where I was checking my mail when I got like a new email in my inbox that was just like advanced screening of the master sign up now limited tickets. And, and within four minutes I had gotten a ticket for myself. And at the time, if I remember, it was obviously one of those things where like immediately it sold out and, and do this because it was also like it was an advanced screening and it wasn't like two weeks in advance either. It was like maybe late August and the movie wasn't due to come out till like October, November, I think. Obviously, you if told me long, after you saw it, too. You yeah. didn't even fucking tell me when you got the ticket. You were like, <laughs> guess what I just saw? And I'm like, yeah. I can't guess because I'll never guess. You're like the master and I hated you for about five minutes. It had no, it had no credits either. Like at the end, when the song starts, it just was black screen. They hadn't even finished doing the credits to it, but um, okay. I love Paul Thomas Anderson. You love Paul Thomas Anderson. Everyone loves Paul Thomas Anderson, but why is this? Or they should. Well, yeah, it, it, again, I wanted to have more picks from like later in life. I, I was in my 
early twenties when this came out. And I, I can't remember there's very few film screenings that I can recall where I see a film and it has such an impact on me. I don't know what to think when it's over. Yeah. And I'm kind of, I don't mean that in a good way or bad, just in a neutral way. I am kind of at a loss for words. And I remember when I saw that a couple of the F this movie guys had gotten tickets too, and we weren't sitting together, but I met up with them after the screening and like no one could really verbalize the experience of watching that movie. And I've, I have such a, a vivid memory of being outside the music box. We had just seen this really strange abstract film and we were all kind of just standing in a circle, nodding our heads, being like, wow, that I don't, I don't know what that was, you know? And I, I tend to have a similar experience with a lot of his movies. I mean, there will be blood and boogie nights are two of my favorite movies, but I remember the first time I watched them, I was kind of like, I don't know what this guy wants from me. You know, I had a very, again, Mark Marin. I had a very Marin-esque reaction that was kind of like, what is, what is he doing? What is he trying to get out of me? But again, the thing that happens uh, so frequently with, with good pieces of art happened with me where I can't stop thinking about it. Even though I'm telling myself, I don't know what I feel. I can't stop thinking about it. And that that intrigue and that fascination translates to wanting to watch it again as soon as possible. And in the process of doing that, you, you sort of fall in love with the thing and, and master really followed suit, but on, on such a crazy level because the, the hype for that film was so big, but people didn't really know what it was about. There was a script that had leaked, but even that script, the, the film deviates no. so much from that original script to the point where the main character's fucking name is different, you know? Yeah. Yeah, this is there's something I want to slightly interrupt you here with because uh, you're going in a direction. I just want to get this out. My I went with uh, my buddy Riley, my friend Jason, and uh, my daughter's mom. We were married at the time, and we we all went to the Keystone Arts Theater in Indianapolis to see this movie. And it was just in theaters at this point. And uh, as soon as we left, it was me and Riley in the front seats, and my buddies Jason and uh, and Melissa were in the back seat, and we're sitting. And we're we st- like, we don't even go anywhere yet. I'm still in the parking lot. And Riley and I are gushing about this movie because as soon as it was over, I knew this was a, a love story between these two guys. But it never tells you that. Right. You see a, right. a bunch of slices of life, which they do this and there will be blood as well. <coughs> Excuse me. They do this and there will be blood as well. Um, but there there are those scenes that stand out so much that you don't feel lost at all you know what i mean because and there will be blood like you see uh you know the pastor eli and you see uh you know um uh daniel day lewis's character why did i just forget daniel daniel plainview you see daniel in there in like the church you know and and eli's freaking out and he's screaming he's slapping him in the face and it's like i don't even give a fuck what this is even about right now this is just awesome you know what i mean like there's just so many scenes like that that it's just generally entertaining but the master Though I love a lot of the scenes, I think a lot of people could watch that. And if they don't get it, they're just like, the fuck did we just watch? Because that was exactly the reaction I got in the backseat, which was um, my daughter's mom and Jason were just like, I don't know how you guys get that from that movie. That just was like scenes of people doing things. And like Riley and I are just breaking this movie down. And it was the first movie 
I remember watching that had an kind of an abstract structure where it's telling you a story based on you retroactively putting the pieces together. Right. Um, that caused me to go back and rewatch certain movies and actually understand them now because mm-hmm. I didn't understand that storytelling. This was like and 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 um, most recently, The Power of the Dog from last year. Yeah, uh, I brought up the master a lot because it has the exact same style of storytelling. Yeah, for sure, where that's it, actually um, really, I didn't think about that, but that's a really good point of reference. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's it's a very very same thing where I got the same arguments when I when I uh, said that that movie is yeah. my favorite film of last year. People were just like, I, just like nothing happens. You know, I, and I'm I just like, well, very, everything. Yeah, <laughs> without making this a power of the dog podcast, I have a very juvenile qualm with the ending. But apart from that, I love the film. And I, I do think if, if it wasn't first for me last year, it was second, you know, it's yeah. like one or the other, yeah. but I think that is a good reference when we're talking about the storytelling techniques uh, with, with master. And, you know, I'm throwing around the word abstract a lot and it's, it's, it's abstract in a different way than 2001, which, which literally I, you know, I said abstract for that, that film literally ends with like abstract colors and shapes with master. I mean, more like these storytelling beats are not necessarily explicit. So you're watching people do things. It's kind of on to you to piece yeah. them together. It's, it's very literary and it's very much not for everyone, but when it, when it hits, it really hits. And I mean, there's, there's a scene real quick where Phil Seymour Hoffman, they're at a party yeah, and Phil Seymour Hoffman's singing and uh, Freddie Quell, uh, Joaquin Phoenix's character sitting on the stairs Mm-hmm. And he's just watching and it cuts to him looking and then it cuts back and he's watching him dance and sing and get everybody hyped up. And it cuts back to Freddie Quell. Then it cuts back to the master and he's doing his thing. Cuts back to Freddie Quell. And then when it cuts back, all of the women are nude. Yeah. The exact same sequence. Nothing's changed, but he's just envisioning them all nude. And that's one of those. That's a scene I go back to a lot where it's like. A lot of people could just see this as like a funny thing. But when you actually retroactively break down the character of Freddie Quell, there's a lot of meaning in that. And I think that's the reason why a scene like that doesn't feel like exploitation or something. Whereas like there are other movies that do something very similar and they do. And it's like hard to find the nuance to help explain like why these are different. I mean, so it's just that kind of subtle storytelling, man, is you you can tell it's not there to titillate us. You know what I mean? It's not there. Yeah. 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 Yeah, um, there's yeah, really not much attractive that. about that scene. <laughs> and I think even even you know there will be blood might be my favorite of his films, but I I think despite the fact that there's sort of a little bit of parallel between the style of There Will Be Blood and The Master, I wouldn't put There Will Be Blood on the list because the act of watching that movie didn't feel like it changed a lens. You know, watching There Will Be Blood, it just feels like watching a really good movie with kind of a novel approach to a couple of these sequences, mostly the beginning and the end. But watching The Master, I I have a much more visceral recollection of seeing that. And I don't know, like, because you you were talking about what you were getting from the back seat when you saw it. That was a little bit my reaction too, but, but it wasn't hostile. I had a little bit like, I don't know what I just saw, but it I was more fascinated than hostile towards the filmmaker. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, I, I cannot talk about this movie without just bringing up like Mihai Malamar Jr.'s cinematography. Uh, I'm I'm 
heartbroken that they've never collaborated again, yeah. Paul and Mihai, because it the master might be like my favorite looking of all of PTA's movies. And I, I just, the, the fact that it was like the one outlier film where he worked with this different DP, I think actually makes me want to give more credit to Mihai because I like the way it looks so much better than the other films that Mihai wasn't involved with. Um, also, Mihai follows me on Instagram. <laughs> as a guy with like 300 followers, that feels really good. Yeah, that's hilarious. Yeah, that's good. Um, it, it's funny because uh, the, that's not the only uh, collaboration. Uh, fortunately, he collaborated with someone else multiple times, even to date, which is uh, Johnny Greenwood for the score. Yeah. And uh, we were talking about just like fucking phenomenal scores. Yeah. And uh, the master, that cinematography, I feel like is not as good without that sound. And the sure. same goes the other way. Yeah. Like the look makes that music or that score so much more meaningful like dude it's just there's just something about paul thomas anderson it seems like such a um i don't know geeky thing to talk about but he really is like in many ways like my kubrick of today you know what i mean like yeah. it, it may it may not quite be to the level kubrick did but it doesn't have to be the point is he's doing these things and like it just I don't even give a fuck if it's on purpose. He's just like yeah. hitting it. You know what I'm saying? Like he there's just there's an alchemy hits. to how he pairs story and image and sound that just feels so fucking right, even if it's the bits of the movie that are the asides or the throwaways yep. or or whatever you want. And I actually think it's interesting. I, I think Greenwood was robbed by not getting the Academy Award for the score of There Will Be Blood. I I I guess he was disqualified because they used a chunk of like a score he did for another movie. So it technically wasn't an original score. Um, having said that, I, I do think the score to the master is, is more listenable as music. As really? Opposed, I think so. Yeah. Cause I need to go back and listen to it again. There, there will be blood was really influenced by like, you know, Penderecki and yeah. like, you know, more like influenced by the stuff in the shining and it fits the it fits the story of the will be blood perfectly but it's yeah. it's harder to listen to detached i think whereas the master uh, the score to the master i i feel like you can detach it and listen to it as music a little yeah. bit easier that's just i will say that the master has much more melody you know what i mean sure, like sure. It's, it's, and, it's, and different it, it, instrumentation too yeah yeah, because I fucking love there will be bloods score. Like it's, I love them both. It's honestly, man, it's honestly days. probably it might be my favorite score. Like I just love it so much. Yeah. There have been so many times where I've been working on something and I just have it playing, you know. But I also love um, his score for the Power of the Dog, which has a lot mm -hmm. of comparable uh, elements. And yeah. the Master is just its own thing, man. It's great. God damn it! Now I gotta watch. I feel like I have to go watch all of these. I just gave you I'm a so list. Hyped. Yeah, you just gave me a list. <laughs> Um, but, uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's pretty much, that's your lens, man. I mean, that's, yeah. that's where it all started. And of course now, it's been reinforced are. and evolved and everything from these other movies. Um, but I think it's a good list. Now we can move forward yes. and we know where you're coming from. And also, uh, we will definitely have to do this. We each pick a, our favorite Kubrick movie and talk about, um, and talk about why it's great. Cause the eyes wide shut thing. Yeah. I would love, I would love to hear your, 
your take on uh, all of the stuff that yeah. we discussed there. I, I, I would love that too. And I will do my yeah. best to make it uh, not insipid and ranty because I can very easily <laughs> fall into that category when talking about Eyes Wide Shut. I, I think it's probably I, I wanna... that the most amount of people have like gotten wrong. And nine times out of 10, I'm like zen, altruistic, a movie's meaning is whatever you take from it. And this is like the one movie where I'm like, no, fucking people get it wrong. So. Well, I'm telling you now, I'm 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 expecting and demanding that we get that rant. And, <laughs> okay. Um, I'll I'll be I'll be very curious to see to see how that goes. And and yeah. if I if I if I tell you to come back in from the porch, uh, yes. at any point because you're just yeah. an angry man screaming into the yes. ether. Um, uh, I I will if I have to. Uh, but Jake, that's it, man. Thank you so much uh, for okay. coming on and talking about these movies. And yeah. hopefully, our listeners will um give a lot of these a shot if they haven't seen them already. Um, I think there this is a fucking great list to just you, like buddy. throw on. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. So uh, um, appreciate yeah. you having me on again. Always a pleasure coming on here. Yeah, man. Thank you very much. You're welcome, buddy. Well, that was Jake. Uh, what a great guy. <clears throat> um, again, we've had him on the show before, but I just I just couldn't help but think, man, I bet he has some great choices, and I think he did. I have to go watch some of this stuff again. All right, I got to see. I got to watch. I feel like I got to watch the first Jackass movie so I can watch Jackass Forever. I probably should just watch all of them, to be honest. But also, like, Reservoir Dogs and The Master. I mean, I, I'm very, very familiar with both of those movies. Um, but I would just love to rewatch them. And then I have to go back. I've been, pl- I really have been planning this. I just recently made a letterbox, like a private letterbox list for myself to start working through some of the kind of critical 20, I think 17, 2018, 2019 movies that I missed. Uh, 2018 is probably one of the biggest, like I watched Jack shit that year. Um, I was just way behind different point in my life. Okay. Um, but that was also part of the motivation to start this podcast was like, dude, I love film so much and I'm not consuming enough anymore and I need an excuse so that I can go do this and share my thoughts with these people. Uh, and it's been great again. Thank you guys for listening. Cause it just makes it so much more worth it. Um, but, uh, with all that in mind, thank you for listening to Jake and I talk about things, all things, movies, uh, definitely hit us up medium cool pod on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can also email us at medium at gmail.com. I love you guys so much. Thank you. Good night. Good luck and take it easy. <laughs>